I mean, obviously I went in at 14, but yeah, I, I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, but um, I know the people used to do this thing called the milk round where they go to schools and tell people what being surveyor was. But the only thing they did last time was teach you what a quantity surveyor was. And I found that to be, I have to be honest, thought that was quite boring doing, you know, the, the, you know what they call brick counting. Uh, well, there's a lot more to it than that now, but um, that's what it was always called. I think um, it needs to be exciting. It needs to be seen as exciting. Otherwise, you know, it, it's um, all that'll happen is that the engineers and architects and other accountants will steal our space if we're not careful. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marion Ellis, and in today's episode, I chat with Bill Jones, a chartered surveyor, originally from the Wirral, but now residing in Singapore for the last 16 years. Aside from the day job, Bill has been an active mentor and counsellor for many years, helping people towards their RICS goals. And I got to know Bill over the past couple of years from our time on the RICS Governing Council. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you very much, Marion. Great to be here. And I feel like this podcast is going to be one of those ones where we just chat about everything. <laughs> yes, when we get together, we do we chat about everything. So it will be one of those. So hopefully we won't get too distracted about whatever. But for those who don't know you, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Bill Jones. Uh, full name William, but yeah, everyone calls me Bill. Originally from the Wirral. Uh, that's my original sort of home. I moved to Singapore uh, 17 years ago when I was working for Shell. And I've been here pretty much ever since that time, really. I uh, brought the family out and settled here on a permanent basis. Um, so a uh, bit about me. I'm a chartered surveyor. Came into the world of surveying at a very young age, the age of 14, working for my uncle, who was a, was a retired valuation building surveyor, mixture of both. And uh, basically studied under him, doing all sorts, holding tape measures and stuff like that and doing all those type of things. And just got the bug for it. Just fell in love with what was originally uh, doing um, residential surveys and valuations. Simple as that. Great stuff. Loved it. And um, just decided I wanted to be a chartered surveyor. So been a chartered surveyor since the age of 23. So qualified. So here you go. That's a bit about me. Got family. There's so many questions there, Bill. The first is that for many years I thought you were a QS, which uh, ah. I knew you do. I knew you'd done lots of uh, different things, and we know each other because we were on governing council together. You're as we record this, you're still on the current uh, RICS uh, governing council, and that's how we've um, got to know. I don't think our, our paths would have crossed otherwise. Nothing that um, helped them really. We were connected on LinkedIn, but um, where it was really through the RICS. Well, that doesn't count really, does it? We didn't meet. No, we hadn't actually meet until. In person until the end of 2019. But yeah, yeah, it's, but yeah, that's how we've had to know each other. And for those listening, you may or may not know, I recorded these on Zoom because I find it a lot easier to see who I'm, I'm speaking to. And the problem with Bill is that in my head, he is Paul McCartney. Aha, Paul McCartney. Because wow. You've, I mean, he, he, <laughs> because well, you've just not. The accent and in my head, I, that's what I just do. So I don't know if that's flattering or offensive, depending on which, <laughs> which side of the fence you're on. But I always think of you as, as Paul Cartney. Let's chat about your career then, because you started up okay. 14. I wonder if that's the earliest, yes. youngest <laughs> surveyor journey. But 
uh, in uh, in the Wirral. So, you know, what yeah. What really got you uh, hooked? You know, you said you got the bug. What, what was it? Well, it was just looking for something to do. I mean, I was um, sort of 14, wanted to earn some money, basically. Simple as that. It was wanting to just go and watch Liverpool Football Club, you know, across the water, the other side of the water. So it was, um, I'm from, born on the world, but my family are from the Liverpool side, my parents, grandparents. So watching Liverpool. So it was just to earn money to do things like that, which you couldn't really do coming from just quite an ordinary background. Um, need to earn a bit of cash. So didn't know what to do. So I was just, my uncle said, well, you can, you can come with me and you can, you know, hard graft, you know, go out and tape measure damp meters. So that's how I got into it, just doing all that stuff. Remember the first day I did it, though, it was pretty embarrassing. We went to a house somewhere. I think it was actually in somewhere in, in North Wales, Connors came or Flint area, and it was a, a terraced house, an oldish terraced house, and didn't know how to use a damp meter, and I was like terrified, and just stick it in the wall. So I did, and a chunk of the plaster came off because it was damp, and I pulled it out. Not that hard, so of course, immediately I was, I don't know what to do. Lots of apologies to the owner, but it was things like that, going up in lots and going on the floors, actually just being out. I didn't want to do a job where I was just stuck in an office all day, and I knew, although I love football, I would never be a professional footballer. You know, you used to realize that. And although in the family who had musicians, people who could you know, sing and make music, knew I'd never be a musician. I could never sing to that level of competency. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's, that's so you're not really the advice that carried on earning pocket money. So you're really not Paul McCartney. My, my, <laughs> well, funnily enough, my mum. I uh, used to go and see the Beatles and she knew them. So she knew them pretty well. I think everyone's got a tenuous link to the, uh, everyone's got a tenuous link to the, to the Beatles. I think a lot of surveyors will remember that first day or that first property that you go to and it is really nerve wracking and you can't really prepare for it. You're going into, you're going on someone else's territory, so to speak, and you're going in a professional capacity, whatever age you are or however you, you start. And I think, and you know, as soon as you said that about the putting the moisture meter into the wall and pulling it out, I remember doing exactly the same with a wall that was basically oh, yeah. made of sand. And um, the lady was watching me, and I remember saying, "What did you do?" And I said, "More's the more's the worry. If the rest of this house is built like that, will it still be standing?" And I felt bad about that afterwards because <laughs> she was probably terrified. But you know, these things. Um, these things happen. Were you quite academic at school? How did you get your qualifications to be, um, or get qualified as a surveyor? What route? I think I pretty much scraped through. I just, um, because I spent a lot of time, um, you know, I used to like to, um, I mean, not what I call an extrovert, but I used to have lots of friends, used to like to get out and about and did wasn't bookish. So I just did always enough to get through. So that was basically me. So I did Usual thing, I think I got maths and uh, maths and English. I got the basic O level for those. And other, I did languages. I did, yeah, I did languages. I mean, I did um, Russian and French to A level and things like that. And I also did Latin as well, which was just because I had an interest in ling- yeah, the, uh, linguistics. So that's what um, I just did those and managed to get good scores in O levels and A levels. But it was always with a view to doing that. And I must admit that to school, they were sort of saying, well, you could do something else. You know, you've got good results in A-levels. And I said, no, my aim was always just to get enough. And um, 
I know that people were going to things like Reading or Harriet Watt, and I just wanted, because I then had this Liverpool season ticket, I didn't want to travel very far. <laughs> so, and that was quite quite strange now, considering, I've, you know, as I say, I'm, my dad used to, to work in all sorts of far-flung places, and he would always travel. And I suppose because of that, I used to think, well, you know, is it a good thing? Because we never see him. You never saw much of him when I was a kid. So I always thought, right, I'll stay. I'll be a home bird. Yeah, I'm quite happy to stay at home and um, just do that. Obviously, the, the travel bug got me a few years later. But um, I think that's yeah, really but at that time, it was staying out. Being on home territory was uh, was great for me. And being able to um, have my social circle unbroken was, was even better. Yeah. I think that's um, in part a generational thing. <laughs> and I say that. Because I was at myself, I went to um, a local institute, as was then. It's now a now a university. It never occurred to me to leave Wales, and I did apply, I think, to Reading, uh, and I was I was a bit poorly, so I had to de- uh, delay my um, uh, my degree. And then life just takes over as as it does. And I think there's a lot to be said for studying local, you know, that reassurance, the yeah. costs, and and all of those things. But we don't always yeah. think about what's possible, and you know. I've always seen myself as sort of quite sheltered and only in the last few years thinking more globally. And I think being on governing council has helped me certainly mm-hmm. with that. But you had the uh, an understanding of what it mean, meant to travel around the world if your your parents were, so, or your dad was. So where was your first job then? Your proper job? First job after I left the, the College of Bricks, as it was called, the Liverpool Polytechnic, which is now LJMU. It was a great course, made great lecturers and everything else. So I worked in Chester for a couple of years uh, after that. I did my sort of tra- my cadet training at uh, Cheshire County Council. So I didn't want to go back and work for my uncle. Uh, I could have done, but I said, no, I want to just try something different. And that when I started to get more into uh, you know, the sort of wider sort of uh, general practice, as it was called then, doing sort of commercial and other, other property inspections and property sales and getting get properties ready for disposal because they had huge estates. So you're, you're looking at anything and everything. There was really good grounding and the people there were fantastic and a big team long I, before I the days that, of outsourcing. Yeah, I hear that quite a lot. Um, we've had a few people as um, guests on the podcast and they, they started out working for a local authority. I mean, how local can you get? But it's a really good yeah. grounding for the training that yeah. you need and I don't know, maybe it's a bit stability, I guess, not the, not necessarily jobs for life anymore, but a lot of people find that as a good, really good, good stepping stone. And so, what was your role there? You you morphed into a sort of general practice you mentioned, or was it anything specific that you did? Well, I um, was there for two years, just on which I got my RSCS, and it was basically what I was doing was just it was being inspections. So they'd have all these various houses. A lot of people like in, in the fire service or would have houses, police service. They also had these huge agricultural holdings, so I had to manage those as well, which was always quite a sort of... It's amazing how the, it culturally changes because the, the head of the rural estate, this, this I won't mention his name, but he's, he's, he's still alive. He's long retired now. Mm-hmm. But um, first de- first week, I just we had uh, an appointment. His, uh, his uh, secretary came and she said to me, right, you've got to go and see him at a certain time. He was nine o'clock prompt on the Wednesday morning. So I just walked straight into his room. He had this big, big office. And of course, I didn't knock to go in, you know. <laughs> and I called him by his first name. So immediately he just he just went into a rage and I was I have to call him Mr. Mr. Flanagan. 
and set me out to knock on the door. So I had to go out and knock on the door and it was come in, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's all very, I mean, that that's just a different world now. I mean, I, I thank goodness see, it uh, is. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was also awful. I mean, just, just in terms of your own personal morale, but you just had to um, get on there, but it was not nice, that kind of thing, because it was always, you never learned anything from those people. You know, not everybody was like that. I worked with some fantastic people who taught me so much in that two years. You know, it's, um, you know, and it's funny, um, one of them went on to be a work colleague, uh, two of them actually, when I went to Shell later on, at the same level, I was part of the same team. It's funny that they were both higher than my bosses and became, you know, really, really good friends. Um, and that, that's a, life evolves, you know, you never burn your bridges with people, even with those horrible people like Mr. Flanagan, you know, never burn your bid, bridges with them because you may, you may at some point come back and deal with them. Um, challenge them that they're horrible. Yeah, you. I don't know. It's, it's difficult because we shouldn't have to tolerate some of the things that we put up with and it's finding that balance, but nobody should have to, I mean, in this day and age, you know, I think we've got a generational shift of culture. Yeah. Nobody should have to put up with the, with those things, but you're right in terms of, you know, the people that you get to know that you might later work with and, yeah. you know, they might be your boss or you might be, be their boss. And I think something that I come across certainly is, you know, surveyors don't get that training as such on, how to be an employee, how to, how business works, you know, how to communicate with, with people, you know, we talk about on the job training, but there's a, there's yeah. something to be said for understanding, you know, the rules and the unwritten rules, if you like. And I think it's quite hard even now for students, trainees, those just starting out to, to understand how to pitch things and, and, you know, whether we say the wrong thing, what's appropriate or not, it's all about testing the boundaries at every stage, isn't it, of, of what's acceptable. And and now, you know, as we record this, we've come out of a two and a half year global pandemic, depending on where you are in the world. And that's added another layer of complexity, hasn't it? Because there's lots of people who haven't had the mentoring, haven't had the interaction. Um, yeah, it's quite, quite interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, when I first started, it was, I got that grounding, but other people didn't get that level of grounding where they didn't get taught how to how to speak to somebody when they knocked on the door, how to speak to somebody on the phone, how to write a letter, all that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I was lucky to get that. Others didn't, and they just had to learn on the job, which um, by mistakes almost, you know, which is not a good way to do it. It needs somebody to coach you. And, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's always... That's why now I always try and sort of pass on, you know, if people want to let, you know, want to learn stuff from me, then happy to pass on, even if it's just one little tiny thing, because it can just help people make that difference in their careers, just to, just that tiny little thing. And uh, yeah, that, that's important. So it's a really duty to do that. I think as chartered surveyors, I think we have that duty to do it within our profession. Uh, I think you're right. And it's, it's not just about the technical things that we're sharing, but also, and it sounds really you know, teaching someone how to send an email, teaching someone how to answer the phone. But yeah. I've never done it before. And I remember the first day on my graduate scheme that I did with Lang many years ago, I'd worked for a few years before um, I was sort of more mature than you know, the others. And on day one, they were literally terrified about answering the, the phone. And I was just thinking, how the hell am I going to survive 18 months if everyone else is worrying about how to answer the phone? Obviously, other things that I needed to learn, you know, but... um. And, and and it's not about doing things all proper, but it's knowing how to communicate with people 
getting a sense of when things are right or wrong. You know, um, lots of things that can be can be learned, and we can be so abrupt. And I'm and I'm like that. I'm very abrupt on emails. So I'm just not not thinking properly. I have to take time to say hi. You know, <laughs> and in my head I've said it, but I just haven't written it down. Let me ask you about moving to Shell then, because that must have been oh, yeah. a bit of a culture change, would it, from local authority to it to an organisation yeah. like that? It was. I did after I left um, Cheshire Dick for years in private practice, and then I moved back into government because there was um, just opportunities. I mean, I worked for Merseyside Police Authority and the, Nas- and the National Crime Squad. And what we were doing there was pr- um, property development. So we were selling off the uh, the, the older stock and, re- and be getting funding to, to build new design and build projects. So that was an opportunity just to move into something completely different. So moving on from the sort of managing the corporate real estate in a local authority to actually doing some project development, uh, property development. And project management. I remember the architects hated the idea of uh, you know these chartered surveyors coming in to managing projects because they all thought you know back in you know thirty year or twenty five thirty years ago it should all be done by architects you know could not be done or engineers could not be done by a chartered surveyor. But we I think we have that wide, you know good skill set to be able to do that. So that in turn led me to Shell because they were do, they were trying to do some things that were different instead of just managing Shell's corporate estate. They had some challenges uh which meant they had to you do different things so yeah it was a big change for me yeah having to adapt to working in yeah in a sort of um private corporate world in a big organization like shell yeah was a big uh, yeah did you have to retrain then because I, i i come across lots of surveyors who you know there might be a qs they want to move into residential or you know move into different types of, of surveying and just because you're qualified or a, or a member of the RISS doesn't mean you're good enough to do the, the job and so a lot of people don't take the leap because they think they need to have to retrain or they don't have to start again and how did you find the transition then to the or was it did it feel sort of more natural the next thing the next thing I think having done that sort of pro- property yeah the development side I don't space, I guess you know yeah yeah and then also I'd done some work in local authorities, some of the early days of you know, finding sustainable solutions for some problem estates in the north of England, where we sort of try and think of holistic solutions um, and also looking at things like, you know, energy management systems. So we got involved in some of that. So that was a big help to me with Michelle because none of the other people really had those skills, but they were used to managing, you know, in a big organization like Shell. The adjustments really were cultural. A lot of the surveyors who worked for Shell at that time, worked for, you know, double-barrel surname folks, and they were uh, slightly different to the type of people had worked alongside. They, um, some of them were a bit aloof, which which was a challenge itself, having to really challenge me to try and sort of build relationships with these people, which, you had, you know, which I did in the end. Health and safety culture was was the biggest shock because, you know, holding handrails and having to follow rules. Even in the early days of mobile phones, people would use them walking downstairs, which you couldn't do. Very strict rules at refineries, wearing PPE, things like that, which in the local authority I worked for, I also worked for Merseyside Police Authority, it was never really, you know, even like women working alone, that, that was never thought about. It was always thought about as being, oh, it's, it's not important. You know, you just get on with the job. We sheltered that very seriously. So, yeah, first six months, I would say, was a steep learning curve in terms of this big organization and having to do things a bit more quickly having to meet deadlines, having to do, follow really strict processes and 
health and safety training. I mean, that was quite intense. You couldn't start working in a refinery or go and do any work on a refinery uh, unless you had that that training and passed those examinations. And we did DuPont training, which was very, very strict uh, as well. You know, it was it was the stage where you, you wanted to carry anything above a certain weight. You had to put on a trolley. Whereas most of us would carry it. No, no, yeah, you had to put it on a trolley and get um, things signed off, you know, scaffolding, having scab tags, all this type of thing. Yeah, very, very strict rules. So yeah, it was, um, but once I've done that learning, it was a um, fantastic place to work. So I enjoyed my 10 years there. Yeah, it was just and, and is that where you started to travel or was that still in the UK? Yeah. Yeah. I remember my interview, Mike, there's a guy called Mike Barker, who was the, then the global head of real estate. And he was um, fantastic, Mike. He was, I said, in those days, it was all chartered surveyors, very different now. It, well, a lot of them are just Cornet, that's their sort of go-to sort of body and it's mostly networking, but you had to be a chartered surveyor to get a job in Shell in those days, very strict. I remember Mike at the interview saying, what, yeah, are you, would you be prepared to travel? And, I asked, and he said, so what happened if I, tomorrow, I said to you, right, we've got, yeah, we need to send you to, um, you know, South America to go and sort of look at a piece of land and come up back and tell us um, how, how we can uh, dispose of this um, surplus land or building asset we have in in Chile or Argentina. And I said, well, no, I absolutely have no problem with uh, with that. I talked to the, the family about it. And said, yeah, we up for the challenge. And I said, you know, in, you know, in my job within the National Crime Squad, the furthest I got was Carlisle, so I think of London, you know. <laughs> and then, so, you know, and whilst that was a big adventure to travel to Carlisle or London for a couple of days on a, on a, on a, um, you know, on a project, the idea of going to Chile or Argentina was, um, was just something, yeah, unheard of. But yeah, within a couple of years, yeah, well, within 18 months, I was traveling to Europe. And then within, let's say, three years, I sort of started traveling to Singapore and Malaysia. And then, you know, Philippines, Thailand, and then they offered me the chance to move out here permanently. And that's how it came about, yeah. For two years, they said, two years. I'm <laughs> 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 still here, so <laughs> something happened along the way. <laughs> So how did that work with family then, you know, sort of moving family around? And that must, because, you know, we talk about doing our, our jobs, but there are consequences, aren't there, you know, of either not being with our families or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see relatives pass away, you know, like my dad and grandma pass away and not being able to be there when it happened. So you do miss things like that. And for my children, it was enough people to go to school, especially my daughter initially a huge upheaval, but it did help in the sense that she's um, dyslexic and also she's uh, dyspraxic. So she knows it's sort of the, the, the clumsiness thing, as well as being uh, having that trouble with their learning at school. So she couldn't do sports very well and she couldn't read or write very well and learn things. So the UK didn't help her. It didn't, the system didn't help her. Whereas in Singapore, she got loads of help. Obviously, shell papers went, we all went to the international schools. So you're paying for it. And so this the UK where it was the obviously the uh, the state system, but uh, yeah, so she, they but yeah they did you know it was tough for them at first the kids and, and also the climate the humidity really impacted them. They come out from school and just practically fall asleep you know because the humidity would just get you. So yeah, it wasn't it was a it was a big upheaval. So uh, yeah, I say family issues as well. My wife's. Uh, Dad passed away, literally, we really arrived, you know, straight away. So he couldn't get get back, you know. 
things like that do impact you. So you have to think about that, you know, think about the consequences and make sure you have a good employer who will help you to, um, when, when needed to go back at short notice. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more flexibility in big organizations now than was when I joined, because I had some, it, you know, the bosses were not all that in show. We're not all that flexible, we're not flexible at all. Um, that's probably what led me to move on really. They sort of found that there was, um, you know, there were certain people in the organization, you, you know, it's, uh, you can be in a fantastic organization, but <laughs> if you've got a horrible boss, you sometimes have to move on, unfortunately. Yeah, and that could be anywhere, yeah. can't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought Shell was a fantastic, it's still a fantastic organization, doing some great stuff, trying to move into renewable energies and, and you know, really, and, you know, in terms of diversity inclusion, it, it was just seamless, even um, 12, 15 years ago. It was just part of your DNA. Had to be, that was a different sh- you know, thing I had to learn. It was part of the DNA of, of Shell, and it was fantastic, and still is a fantastic organization, but a horrible boss makes you move on, and people need to think about that in the world. There's so many people who, um, you know, probably the majority of people move on, not because of the organization, but it's because they, uh, you know, you get a, um, a manager who just doesn't know how to manage, doesn't know how to yeah. mentor or, or and keep I think, people. I think you're right, and I think that comes back to that, you know, learning how to answer the phone and doing the the office basics. It's then learning how to be a manager. Recently, and as where this goes out a couple of months after um uh, after we recorded it, but recently I put, popped a post on on LinkedIn because a surveyor reached out to me. She's working all sorts of hours. You know, she's tried to talk to her boss about it. And it's just, no, you do this. You just, and, and what's evident is he clearly doesn't know how to manage. She's struggling. But I also feel for that manager because they don't know any different. And I wonder, you know, in some areas, some types of companies, there's almost a, a generational thing of, well, I only know how to manage people this way, which is to crack the work, make them work harder, set rules, and they get on with it. They perform or they don't. And they can be successful at that. But now we have a much more, I guess, becoming a much more accepting society and you talk about diversity and accessibility in lots of different ways yeah, yeah. you know and, and even even if you haven't got those challenges there's still things like juggling childcare, and that's a parents a parental issue not just a, a female or, or maternal issue and we've got to be lo- be looking at that and so sometimes you do wonder is that hierarchy model still relevant because we're all trying to fit into it and most of us don't we leave and we move when actually, does it need to be a different model? I don't know. Well, I think, you know, my, my thoughts. <laughs> but we'll, well I, get there I, in our lifetime, but, you know. No, I think that management, the toolkit, which somebody once said to me, I, I, I was with the police authority. Was at this, my boss was a guy called Sir David Henshaw, and he, he always talked about having a toolkit. You've got so many different skill sets as a manager. Sometimes you do need to. Uh, correct the whip, but you know, most of the time you have to employ so many different skill sets to, uh, and for different people, there's different ways that they will react to things. Um, yeah, so you need you need to have so many skill sets to manage. You can't just do it. Say this is my, uh, and he used to say to people, so I was interviewing somebody to, to be, a, you know, to come in at a management level, and I said, to what's your style? And they said, just said one word in back. He would just say, no, I don't want them. I want something to say. I don't have a style. I have a number of different. Um, styles and uh, different approaches to to how I manage it. I have a whole range. That's what he wanted to hear, and I think that's a really good way of approaching it. Because um, I used to, yeah over the years I've managed people with so many different 
has to say nationalities um, and age groups, you know, the whole range and um, people with different sort of family backgrounds, different, um, how should I say, family challenges. You, you just got to uh, treat everybody differently and understand where they, uh, where they sit in terms of their career plan, family and everything else and get the best out of them. At the end of the day, that's that the reason you employ people is to, um, is not just to give them the best opportunity, but it's to make sure that you can get uh, results as well. Yeah, you know, it's all, all about that uh, two-way process. So, uh, you know, and I guess, I guess the thing is to be a cons- to be consistently different. <laughs> I guess in that yeah, yeah. T- tuned in to and know the people that work for you and with you, so that you can be more sensitive when you need to or supportive in a tough love kind of way but I do think that you know for lots of surveyors out there starting their careers you know or whatever stage they're at they'll be thinking I just want to be a surveyor and do a job and they don't get involved in the mm-hmm. management side they don't become aware of it and I I talk to a lot of people about being in the business of surveying a surveyor is in the business of surveying you know it's not just inspecting a building doing a report or whatever You've got to be aware and have context of everything else that's that's around you. And having that managerial toolkit, even if you're not managing people, is so important because you're managing projects or progressing things through or, or whatever it is, you know, or making tough decisions, delivering bad news sometimes. So having that yeah. toolkit, I think, is absolutely, uh, absolutely vital. And and I'm sure, you, you know, as you said, you've seen that on a, you know, an international level with different cultures yeah. And, yeah. And, th- and those things that must have been um, a lot to learn and I almost sort of get a sense that sometimes the world can seem so small because we're connected we can travel anywhere we want usually yeah. but it is so big and vast at the same time you know that there's oh, yeah. the really oceans between between them can I ask you about you know you, you mentioned uh, Shell you had to be a chartered surveyor to work in certain yeah. departments or Correct. certain companies and that has evolved over over the years and we you know we see that and I guess that sort of brings in the question of you know are surveyors relevant um, now here oh, in, yeah. uh, there's a t- there's a tough one now here in the UK I know it, those in that do valuation work it is relevant it is essential you have to be a, a registered RICS value to do that kind of work but I think for the rest of surveyors in in lots of different guises you know, it's a, a good to have, nice to have, not necessarily an essential. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that as as change? And, and is that similar across the world that you've seen? Certainly, you're right on the UK picture. Outside the UK, I've seen, um, it's an interesting one in terms of the sort of particularly corporate real estate, which is where I spent a lot of my career. See, so a lot of people now, like like of Shell, will put you know, in a job adverse that they want people you know, see on LinkedIn, they say, you know, get a, a Cornet you know, qualification like MCR or one of these Cornet qualifications will, uh, will is what they're looking for. They don't necessarily go for RSCS anymore, which is, I think it's a shame because I think that wider skill set, you know, Cornet, a lot of it's about networking and that's really important. And um, that's dropped off across the Asia-Pacific region. It's dropped off within RSCS. We don't do enough networking. I mean, we used to. And it's dropped off, and that needs to come back to really counterbalance that. And that's where Coalesce got a big advantage. They got the networking side. It's important to grow people's social and uh, interaction skills with clients, stakeholders, uh, peers. 
and um, also the learning side, and they've come up with the learning. But yeah, there's, there's, um, I think that scenario in RICS does need to, um, can step into that ground again, which is lost to some degree, not for anyone's fault, but just through a series of circumstances, it's lost a bit of that outside the UK, certainly need to, um, to, to make it relevant again. You do need to start to think about a qualification because people like to get that. Uh, over the years around Asia Pacific region, I've seen so many people who, you know, really come to me and said, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I've got that now. That qualification is so important to me personally. So I think it does have that personal value still, but people then to get on their careers, that personal value isn't enough to get them a job. So they need uh, to get some kind of qualification that's recognized, not necessarily a degree, but it could be, you know, um, certain types of learning programs and corners have got some of that because they've got like this QCR, so it's a qualification, which isn't a, you know, a long-term thing. It can take you six months or 12 months to get. So we need some of those things like diplomas or a whole mixed bag of things that we can use. Um, and as I say, that sort of networking yeah. side is important as well because I believe young people coming through now don't just want the qualification. They want something where they can network with their peers and with um, stakeholders, potential employers, that kind of thing as well. So that's what I think will make a qualification relevant in the future is having that mixed bag of things, not just having letters after your name, you've got to have that sort of wider sort of uh, platform. So yeah, I think it still is relevant, but it's lost a bit of relevance uh, or lost it's quite a bit of staff. You know, okay, our ICS has had a, yeah. an interesting couple of years, uh, you know, uh, True. for lots of different reasons. But I think it's always had a challenge of being, you know, a standards and regulation body and, yeah. you know, the membership side of what that, means to people you know it's like i'm in charge but i'm your friend as well and that can always be you know really a really difficult uh, difficult mix and you know i hear a lot of surveyors talk about you know our ics doesn't do enough to explain what we do and the relevance and promote to industry and, and the profession to industry and and, and there is a, an argument to that you know absolutely but i also believe that surveyors need to talk more about what they do, um, how they do it, why they do it, what they love about it, so that people can just get a better understanding of what surveyors are about. And the the, the challenge is good point. Good absolutely point. bloody different, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. In where we're such a, a mixed bag, and so, but it for me it comes back to that whole purpose of keeping people safe, helping them live their lives in in the form of structure even if that if you're doing valuation you know we've all have a have a part to it and so you know maybe and i and i get the the qualification part you know because we do need to be to be qualified but there are others out there who do it better do it you know in a different relevant way you're always going to be on the back foot whatever membership body you're you're part of but i think there's a big piece there of helping people understand what surveyors are about better and we can do a lot of that ourselves I think we need to do that. I mean, it's it's funny that um, years ago when I, I mean, obviously I went in at 14, but yeah, I I, I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, but um, I know the people used to do the thing called the milk round where they go to schools and tell people what being surveyor was. But the only thing they did last time was to ensure what a quantity surveyor was. And I found that to be, I have to be honest, I thought that was quite boring doing, you know, the, the, you know what they call brick <laughs> counting. Uh, well, there's a lot more to it than that now, but um, that's what it was always called. 
I think um, it needs to be exciting. It needs to be seen as exciting. Otherwise, you know, it, it's um, all that'll happen is that the engineers and architects and accountants will steal our space if we're not careful. Whereas surveying it, it, it is it is a skill set in its own, really, because it's um, and I think that people don't perhaps appreciate that. So we do need to sell it better. We need to actually uh, start to produce that's, materials. That's, we, can all, we can all we can all play a part in that and. Yeah, we need to make it exciting. Um, and well, that's but, and, and that's, a, a, yeah, that's a list of things. Yeah, that's a, that's a, really, that's a really hard thing to fix. That's a really hard thing to, to fix. <laughs> so I remember going into um, a school a couple of years ago, and um, there was three of us, and I think the kids must have been about 12, 13, something like that. Um, I was I went in as a, a resi valuer, effectively. I just talked to them about being a bit of a state, an estate agent was the easiest way to, to explain a lot of it. Uh, there was another guy there who ran a carpet shop. He did quite well. He's got quite charismatic, said he fits carpets. This is the money I've got and this is my van. And there was this guy who worked for Aston Martin, the car place, and he worked in the prototype department. And he described how uh, he'd be in this room and it had lots of lights and they would get the car right and it was all flat. So there was no bumps whatsoever. And the kids were like, wow. And they literally had, he had them in the palm of his hands until he said, but you can't take your mobile phones in there. It's all top secret. And they were like, what? Uh, <laughs> you know? And so it's really, it's really hard to, to engage. But I think the more that you can, you know, just demonstrate that you're passionate about what you do, that, that just generates that, that curiosity, doesn't it? And it just plants that seed for, you know, future years to come as to what people people end up uh, end up doing. But I think I do think we've all got a, a part to play. Can I ask you about the work that you that you do now? So you're based over in in Singapore. Yes, that's right. So I came over to do corporate real estate work in Singapore with Shell, managing all of its corporate real estate. Simple as that. Um, and can you explain so, to me, sorry, what corporate real estate is to a yeah resi valuer? <laughs> it doesn't know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I know the workplace is changing, but we still have workplaces. All of Shell's employees work somewhere. Some of them work from home. Some work from offices. Some of them work in refineries. Some of them work in filling stations. Uh, some of them have in distribution. So they are, they all go and fill up a tanker with petrol and take it to the filling stations from a refinery or, for, or from a distribution center. Some of them will take them to airports where there'll be you know, aviation facilities that where Shell will store fuel. Some of them will put them into pipelines. There's pipelines all over the world where you know, they, the product will go into a pipeline and get uh, transported somewhere else. Some of them, there's, there's chemical plants where they will actually break down the, the product into, uh, say, things like uh, plastics. We make plastics out of the product that uh, is brought up from way below the ground and, and taken to refineries. All these different things uh, require a building or a piece of land to, to happen on. Apart from, say, those people who are uh, fortunate enough now to, to work from, from home, you know, get that balance. So you've got, you know, say, offices, refineries, everything else. So the role of me as a corporate estate professional is um, a corporate estate chartered surveyor is to actually uh, support the business, so to, to actually say to the business, what do you need? So, you know, do you need more land for your refinery, which shall we needed to buy a bit more land to expand so that we could build more facilities at the refineries. We needed, in some cases, to provide houses for the senior you know, senior people, buy the houses, whatever, uh, for the, the CEOs and people like that. 
offices, make sure I have the right offices, the right workstations, carpets, all that type of things over an office and manage the offices. Retail, you make sure that you, you manage the retail facilities properly because you have oil storage, petrol storage. You have inside, you've got the um, all the things that you sell, all the anything from coffee to petrol to magazines, all that kind of thing, the supply of all that. So you get involved in any aspect of that to make sure that it all works smoothly and make sure that it makes money for Shell. So yeah, that, that's what corporate estate professional does. They'll get involved in anything and everything. Absolutely. That's- I hadn't realized how broad it was, actually. I mean, I did, but I didn't, you know, how, how broad. And, and so I can see, therefore, how it gives you a lot of flexibility to take on different roles. You know, yeah, it's different. Career it? progresses and, and, and different industry sectors, I guess. Yeah, things like project, you may be a project manager. You can do PMO where you're managing the overall programs. You can be involved in doing transactions, uh, lease management. So you can be in charge of the database, make sure that all the payments go in and out through the URM, you know, whatever systems you use for payments within your organization. There's you know, also things like inspections, you know, so inspecting property. Um, and I say um, the, whole, the whole range of stuff, really, anything you can think of to do with property, you, you have to uh, have to go and do it and somebody has to do it and you outsource it, but you still have to manage the outsource provider. So like so JLL, for example, do loads of stuff for organizations like Shell or ExxonMobil or Standard Chartered Bank or whatever. But there needs to be an in-house team to, to manage that. And that's right. I did for many years in my, you know, with Shell and with Rio Tinto as the in-house um, real estate person. And, and, you know, we talked about the training that you might have as a, you know, as a manager, your career progresses. I guess what's important then is you're, you're alive to not just ticking off your CPD, but making sure your training and your company is relevant because of these different yeah. things. And you're not, you know, totally. spread too thin, but you've got enough, you can outsource it, but you've still got to have a responsibility. And that's the thing that I see yeah, for right. quite a few surveys actually is, you know, we talk about, are we, are we qualified enough to do the job? And we don't always test our competencies we go through because I've been a chartered surveyor for 200 years or whatever it is, and, you know, so you don't, yeah, yeah. You don't test it, but we don't intentionally plan the next step, the next thing that we need to learn. We just sometimes pick CPD because that looks interesting or I have to do it because the regulations changed. So I guess yeah, yeah. it's important to have a really proactive approach to where your your career oh, is, is going. Yeah, I would be a bit broad. I mean, even like um, procurement was a skill I never really had. I mean, I'd left that to the, you know, the procurement in Shell were always a necessary evil. They've seen you've got, to, you've got to use them, but they are difficult, inflexible people, blah, blah. But then I worked for Rio Tinto and I actually was, you know, um, worked in there. Real estate was in their commercial department or the commercial part of the organization, I should say. And that's what happened in mining that the, the real estate sat within uh, commercial, which is effectively procurement sourcing, you know, uh, commercial contracting. And, um, and therefore I learned a huge amount about procurement, which was, you know, definitely a skill set I'd never thought I'd be able to develop, but. I did, and I think that's important that uh, you know that uh, charter surveyors get to understand sourcing. Uh, you know, things like doing RFPs. I'd never, you know, suddenly I was um, having or to, RFP is request for proposal, is it? Proposal, yeah, an RFI, so I refresh for it. So you're sourcing, you're you're outsourcing, say all of your transactions, all of your lease transactions to you know to the market, 
you're going to go out to say JLL, CBRE, Knight Frank, or, or whoever, or, look, or, or even a, a yeah, local firm. Uh, you might be doing it in the country, or you may be doing it for just a one-off project, or globally. So I've done all of those different things. Um, and if we need to do evaluation, you need to manage conflicts of interest. You need to manage you know, the scoring. You need to sort of manage the interview processes with the procurement people. And they know how to manage the processes, but they're not real estate professionals. So you have to work closely with them. And it's something I've never really done before is Shell. We never, we try to work closely, but we've never seen as being important to the senior management. Whereas now I think it's absolutely critical that work, you know, that um, surveyors do, do need to understand about procurements and sourcing so that they can work, you know, do, come up with better outcomes for their uh, their clients or for their mm. the organizations they work for. That's just one thing. I mean, health and safety is another work. You know, you need to learn about that. And um, sustainability is another big area. You know, it's, it's it, I think charter surveyors need to learn much more about that. I mean, managing projects where you say like building a net zero, net zero carbon structure, that kind of thing. It, it, you've got to learn all about the, at least enough about the um, the technical requirements to be able to do your job effectively. I, and I uh, that's, that's a big gap I see. Yeah, I think I think for some, if you're a bit longer in the tooth, that can feel quite scary to learn. Oh yeah, and it's you think scary, yeah, sleepless um, nights. Yeah, I, I've had those sleepless nights, and you know, and I'll never learn enough. But yeah, it's um. The older you get, the, the scarier it is, I think. Yeah, but um, it's exciting at the same time because there's so much, yeah. so much great things you can learn about. Uh, you know, you know how to treat um, rainwater and how you can manage that more effectively, and uh, you know the, the use of these sort of building integrated um, solar panels to you know where you can actually build them into the structure such that they can form part of your building structure and you know provide additional power for your uh, you know, your building or your how to say the complex you work in, and you know, become, you know try to achieve a, a net zero. So whatever you energy you consume in managing your business is actually something that you produce yourself. So you've got that sort of zero in the equation, which is a huge thing. But years ago, I thought, how can you do that? But there are ways to do it. But surveyors don't know enough about that, and, and they need and to get that. Technology has moved on, you know, since. <laughs> And keep moving. We're always out. Yeah, yeah. Let's face it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, you know. Yeah, actually, you meant, mentioned safety. Yeah, which is health and safety, which is so important. And again, you know, we might do a risk assessment as when nipping, whizzing around a house doing a survey. But when it's on a much bigger scale, and you're dealing with bigger projects, you know, there's a worry that you might get things wrong. But I I see this as a common thread with surveyors that I work with or coach and or come across in different capacities. And it's that fear of failure, that fear of getting things wrong, either because they might get sued or, you know, the real consequences, sometimes life or death, depending on what kind of project you're, you're working on. Have there been times where you've really felt that that fear or, you know, and, and yeah, how, yeah. You, how have you got through that? Goodness me, I've had some incidents since, yeah, over the years. I must admit, I've been always, had, I mean, the first time it ever really struck me was, um, I suppose that time of Susie Lamplew, that was the first time it really struck me because we were, yeah, the time I worked, worked for a company. And I remember just the same week, there was one of my peers in the organization. She went to do, um, she, she used to do with residential lettings in the practice. I worked in private practice in those days, in the sort of mid to late 80s. And um, she, you know, went to see someone, this guy 
propositioned her, you know, and she just basically, she stood up to him, but she said, she's a very assertive person, but she said, if, if you sent somebody else who wasn't as assertive, you know, could have got quite nasty. And she never have a mobile phone in those. Nobody, nobody had them. And I remember a couple of years later, I worked, I had a huge row with my boss when I worked in government in the early 90s when one of the ladies in my team, she had her own mobile phone, but he wouldn't buy them for the office. Actually, no, it wasn't. It was late 90s. It was, um, it was when I worked for the um, police authority. And we wouldn't sanction phones. Everyone else was got buying, you know, getting phones and using them. But um, she had her own. Luckily, she had her own because um, it was a situation developed on site. And luckily, because she had the phone, she could ring the office and get somebody to give, you know, help her. And we also rang the police. And she was okay. I mean, it was just verbal altercation, but it could have got really nasty. And the boss wouldn't, yeah, we said, well, that's her problem. No. I said, it's not. <laughs> it's your problem because you, uh, we have, you know, and there's no such thing as risk assessments, you know. There's only one who joined Shell that really understood what, how to do, you know, how you assess risk and how you manage risk. That's what really taught me how to really manage that kind of risks. And Shell was really hot on that kind of stuff and mm. always be grateful for that experience. But, um, you know, since then, yeah, I remember when I was working with Shell, we had a couple of nasty situations where we were managing big estates where um, you'd go out and you'd be literally walking across, you know, pieces of land and you'd encounter things like uh, we had um, unauthorized travelers on land, for example, on Shell land. That could get very, very nasty, you know, that kind of situation where you'd have to try and manage it. But even Shell, you know, was not perfect in how they exposed you to that kind of situation. And the thing, the thing is, we look at health and safety or doing these assessments in terms of what does it say on paper, you know, the, the size of things, the risk of certain things happening, but we're also dealing with human beings and yes. we are unpredictable as much as the human beings that might be tenants or on mm. land or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that's always hard and we just, we just don't take into account of that. And I think people look at surveyors or, uh, you know, engineers or whatever as, you know, we're like robots, very robotic and technical in our in our work, but we're also humans uh, at the end of the day. And so things like, and, and I noticed this uh, when I dealt with um, claims, was that if somebody wasn't having a good day or they had something going on, they were more likely to make a mistake. You know, you know, when you're tired, you're more likely to be clumsy and to, and to hurt yourself. And so yeah. our well-being our physical, mental, and emotional well-being is absolutely critical to our health and safety and the health and safety of others. And yet we don't really factor that in, not not properly. And we, you know, you, you talked about in the early days knocking on that chap's door and, you know, I can imagine you were pretty nervous and, you know, all the feelings that, bundle of feelings that that come come with that. And if we don't oh, make yeah, people, yeah. or help people feel secure and supported then we just become a, an emotional worry, bag of worries, if you like. And that doesn't help us do our jobs properly or better or learn well either. So it's so in, you know, we talk about well-being, you know, like you should just have a green smoothie and have some sleep and go for a run. But it's so much more about that, and I, more than that. And I think given that we're dealing with the places that people live and work, you know, it has a, for me, it's, it's much more, we need to pay more attention to it. You know, we do. Yeah, people don't speak out, especially. I think, um, yeah, especially in this part of the world, people don't automatically speak out about their problems um, at work. 
And whilst you don't you can't force them to, I think there's ways in which you can find you can try and find out more about people's challenges they have at home. I mean, for example, the pandemic, I mean, a lot of employers wanted their workforce to come back, but some of them here in Singapore or Hong Kong live in very small apartments where there's four generations of the family. And if you've got that situation, trying to work in an environment where you've got that four generations can be ex- almost impossible, really, without, you know, but uh, they got through it. I mean, how people, people's resilience is just fantastic. But um, at the same time, the, the well-being thing, you know, the, is, is, more, is just as important as um, personal, personal safety, you know? So uh, it's um, you know it, to me it's 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 just as important now and it's raised it's raised up and it's one area where people used to leave would leave employers because of it and wouldn't say so and they actually could say it was a horrible boss but in fact it was a boss that didn't tune into their their own personal needs and just didn't uh, uh, say take those into full consideration and just said is this just get on with it kind of thing. It's, uh, you know, it was the mentality which has been a, a global problem, I think. And um, we've readdressed it now with the COVID world, but with this still, we still need to constantly think about it and not just managers, but peers as well have a duty to raise it with uh, in team meetings or with managers to to alert them to um, the problems. And that's where trust comes in. You've got to build a trust in order for peers to share their information with a manager and say, somebody's got a problem here. You need as a manager to build that trust with people where they can share that. And there's, you know, these, all of these things, you know, don't happen without consequence. You know, it shapes and changes. And I guess really, you know, just as we've talked there, it's just, it's just made me think actually about, you know, the RICS, you know, and I said, it's a standard regulation body. How could it be your friend as well? But actually, you know, that whole well-being piece and who we are is so important to the work we do that. There is a loop there. It's just finding yeah. that right, right, right combination. And we've got to look after each other. I know we saw this particularly you know, in the Surveyor Hub and some of the other networks I'm in, that surveyors did reach out to support yeah. each other. And you don't have to be a full-on mentor. You know, sometimes it is just that check-in, are you okay? And here's something I've learned. And that feeling of connection is um, is so human. Bill, it's been lovely, lovely to talk to you today. Really good. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take a look at the show notes when you get a chance for the resources and links we mention in the podcast. The Love Surveying podcast is not sponsored, so I'd really appreciate it if you could show your support by sharing the podcast with others, leaving a review, or simply buying us a coffee. Find out more about becoming a Surveyor Hub supporter by visiting lovesurveying.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. I'll see you next time.